<laughs> Have you ever been literally starving? Yep. No. no. <laughs> I've been pretty hungry. Okay. What would you say? That you were literally starving? No. Unless you mean literally in a figurative sense. Yes. But the irony is at least Americans have started using the word literally when they mean figuratively. Yes. Like I literally died. I mean you figure that That's what I meant. Right. Okay. So one of the problems that we have with words is that we have more words or sorry, fewer words than we have concepts. But the word the concepts are related, so we end up using similar words and that creates confusion, it creates issues of semantics, people start arguing, does it mean this, does it mean that? Okay. Now The next section that we're going to go through, in order to make it easier, I want to start by talking about this idea that words can have a true meaning or a literal meaning, and they can have a figurative meaning or a borrowed meaning. Okay. So a word is a borrowed meaning when you take it from its true usage and you apply it to something that is similar. Okay. So what is, why is the eye of a needle called the eye of a needle? It looks like an eye. It's not an eye, but it's kind of like an eye. That's why the eye of a storm is called the eye of a storm. If you look at the storm, the, 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 um, the hurricane from the top, that little calm part in the center kind of looks like there's an eye there. Um, the thing that holds up a table, we tend to call that? Legs. Right? Does it have a knee? No. Why not? Don't legs have knees? What? Right, so it's, is it, it's so it's a leg in a figurative sense. Now, there's an expression. It's not so common in Chabad, but in many uh, other Jewish communities of telling a little child and they do something like, "Oh, you're such a tzaddik." Now, what do we mean by that? We did something good. Right, we did something good, right? So we're using the word tzaddik clearly in a figurative sense, right? Okay. Now, hopefully we never go to a child after they do something and say, you're such a Russia. <laughs> because even though it's in a figurative sense, it probably messes with their self-concept of who they are, right? Okay. Um, that's why it's probably a bad thing to tell a person that you're a bad person for doing something wrong. Right? Because we're very sensitive to criticism. Okay. So, one of the issues is that in the literature of the Torah, meaning um, in the Talmud, in the Halakha Codes, the word Russia and the word Tzaddik are not used consistently. Sometimes they're used in a literal or true sense of the word, and sometimes they're used in a figurative or borrowed sense of the word. And so, before we start really explaining the stuff that we want to understand, what the author wants to make clear is that we need to keep these two different notions separate in our minds. Okay? And that's what this whole paragraph is basically geared towards. Okay. So we are on page, assuming you have the same page numbers as me, three. Or five. Or five. Yeah, this is really inconvenient. But, the older one is three, though. Okay. Fine. It's a paragraph that says, and as for the general saying. And as for the general saying that one whose deeds and misdeeds are equally balanced is called Bainani, while he whose virtues outweigh his sins is called a tzaddik, 
So, if we start counting up your behaviors, your deeds means your behaviors. Calls you what you say, calls you what you think. We start counting them up, and we put like a scale, figuratively speaking. And we start putting all of the misdeeds, all of the sins on the left side of the scale, and all of the goodies, all the mitzvahs on the right side of the scale, and it balances. People say, oh, you're a Bainini. But if we put, if there's more good deeds so that the scale tilts towards the right, then we call that person tzaddik. And if, God forbid, there's more scale, more things on the left side of the scale, they're called a rasha. Now that, 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 those usage of the word exists, and not just that the people say, that is actually found in certain parts of the Talmud, in certain halacha codes. So what the altar wants to say is that we shouldn't conflate that usage of those words with our discussion. Okay. Why? Because this is only the figurative use of the term regarding reward and punishment. Because a person is judged according to the majority of his acts and he is deemed righteous in his verdict since he's acquitted in the law. Meaning, if tzaddik means right or righteous or correct and in the judgment you come out vindicated, then in that sense you're a tzaddik. Now, background. A little bit about Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, that scale that I mentioned, it exists. And God starts putting everyone's mitzvahs on the right side of the scale and everyone's sins on the left side of the scale. Chabad, we don't talk about this too much because we're, we're supposed to care about our relationship with God more than reward and punishment. But it's still true. This happens. And what happens if a person's Mitzvahs outweigh their sins. Anyone know? What? For life? God decides that they would get written into the book of life. And what happens if, God forbid, their sins are more than their mitzvahs? It's in the book of death. In the book of death. Which are also known, parenthetically, as the book of the righteous and the book of the wicked. So, what happens if they're equally balanced? You have to Yom Kippur. If you can tip the scale to the good, then you go into the Book of Life. And if you don't, we don't want to talk about that. But if you're already like in one category, doesn't that time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur matter? Well, you could mess things up. But you can't make it better? You could make it better, but you could also mess it up. But the idea of Bainini in this sense only exists between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Because by Yom Kippur, if you haven't made it, you could definitely mess it up. And on Yom Kippur, then, it, then the books are sealed, and that's the end of that. So that's pretty intense. Hence, if you look in the Rosh Hashanah prayers, there's a lot about God judging us, judging us on Rosh Hashanah. Now, I want to make a few important points clear, because that sounds scary, and it probably is scary on some level. Number one, how does God count the mitzvahs when he's doing this balancing thing? How many, you know, it's, a, it's like if I do six mitzvahs and six sins, then it's equally balanced? Right. It's qualitative. Some mitzvahs count for more, some sins count for more. And it is relative to the person who did it. And it's very clear in the Rambam, when he sets this all down as a matter of law, that only God knows exactly how to evaluate this. Which means unless God directly communicated with you, you do not know how God weighs the severity of someone else's mitzvahs or sins. Yeah. Do we believe that it's that straightforward? Like every person who dies that year 
at the time of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur had more strings than... No, I'm going to... I, I want to go through a few of the things. I'm gonna, I want to go through all the basics of this so that this idea is clear and then we can set it aside and not have to mess up with the time. Because the time is really not about reward and punishment. It's about relationship with God. Okay. So that's number one. So just as a practical matter, um, the rule is like this. If you couldn't have known better, it can't count against you in judgment. By definition. So someone who grows up not religious needs pork. Those don't go on the scale. By the way, the reverse is not true when it comes to mitzvahs. If you didn't do the mitzvah intentionally, you didn't even know it was a mitzvah, it still counts as a mitzvah. Because God is biased. <laughs> He's not exactly a fair judge. Okay. Another thing is if it's the first time doing a sin, God doesn't count that. And that's for each kind of sin. Okay. So you have a bit of leeway. Yeah. Every kind of sin. Every sin. For this judgment issue. For judgment issue, yeah. Yeah, don't do it twice. In terms of this Rosh Hashanah judgment, yeah, I mean, it's not a good thing. There are consequences. There are bad effects of sin that only do with judgment, right? It's like, you know, um, you know, if, if your two-year-old flushes your wedding ring down the toilet, you don't punish them, but you still have lost your wedding ring, right? There are consequences, but that's a different answer. Um, so, plus... A whole other factor, which is where murder makes it more complicated, is if it involves hurting another person, then we have to deal with, you have to make it up to the other person, then murder becomes a whole separate issue. But in terms of this, if it's just involving God. Then, on top of that, um, God has this funny little thing um, that if it's, if, if um, the scales are balanced and, um, if, if the scales are, are if, 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 sorry, if the scales make you a Russia by like just one thing, then he takes it off also because like he doesn't. He tries to get the scales to tip towards the mitzvah. Um, now, in terms of the judgment, the way this works, it is not the case that everybody that dies means that they were deemed to be a Russia in judgment, a wicked person whose sins outweighed their mitzvahs that year. That's just not true. People are assigned a lifespan to fill their life's mission, and they could have just finished their life's mission. Nothing to do with judgment. Okay. So if I know somebody who has died, which most of us know of somebody or know of somebody who has died, we do not infer, well, it must have been the previous Rosh Hashanah, God decreed that they were a wicked person and then they decided they should die. That's not the case. It is the case, though, that if someone lived throughout the whole year, what do we retroactively know about them on Rosh Hashanah? Good. That when God judged them on Rosh Hashanah, he thought, all in all, they're doing more, they did more good than evil. So what does that say about most people? Because most people don't die every year. What? So in this context of judgment, it turns out most people are tzaddikim. Or is it that they just didn't complete their mission? What? Or it's just that they didn't complete their mission? No, because the rule is like this. If God judges that they die, they die even before completing their mission. If a person is guilty of... if at the, When Rosh Hashanah, God makes this judgment, and God decrees that the person is... their bad outweighs the good and they, just, they should die, that's a punishment. And the consequence of that punishment is that they didn't get the opportunity to fill their mission and their soul has to go, come back and reincarnate and it's a mess. Yeah. So it comes out like this. If a person survived the year, I know retroactively, tzaddik in terms of how God judged them. If a person died, I don't know anything. Okay. So it turns out, as much as God is judging, 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 it turns out the standards that he uses to judge are pretty biased in our favor. Okay. Um, yeah. 
Is this only for Jewish people? As far as I can tell, if it's not, I have some questions, but I can't tell you for sure, because I have not seen a source that has said explicitly, but that's what makes sense to me. Um, but I'm open to hearing, so, someone who's familiar with all the sources has a good argument of how it makes sense. Otherwise, I'm open to hearing. I'm not, uh, just... Of him just judging the Jewish people, or of him the, are these, in favor of... This is the way, the way the system of judgment is set by, as I've described on Rosh Hashanah, it seems from the sources to only make sense if it's applied for Jews. If you're going to ask me what's true about not, I don't know. Just, that, that, that seems to make sense to me, and I'm, you know, just, I'm ignorant. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not God. I don't know how he does things. Yeah. yeah. Do we not believe, like, logically, that a person is only alive for as long as Hashem considers it worth it? So, to some extent, like, any person on Rosh Hashanah is judged to live or to die? Maybe not by or like yeah, but, the, but there's, so there's other concepts of judgment that don't have to do with reward and punishment. Okay. Okay. Um, for instance, if I'm deciding that I want to I pick somebody to be the, the team captain, that's not a reward or punishment issue. I'm just thinking of who's the person that's most qualified. So I'm using my faculty of judgment. Mm-hmm. In the sense, I am determining what is more appropriate and what is less appropriate. But it's not, it's not reflecting reward and punishment. So yeah, God has judgment over the world on Rosh Hashanah. There's nothing new with reward and punishment. Like, he's like, this is my plan. What would be effective? What would not be effective? But one of the things he does is that certain people who have been so bad that in God's estimation, their sins outweigh their merits, which is apparently quite rare. God's like, you know what? Even if I could have used them, I'm going to make do without. And It's in that context that we say that a person that's half good deeds and half bad deeds is a bainani. But which should be fairly obvious is this, is this not really describing the person? Right? Um, this is describing you know, what they've done. Right? The same person could have theoretically done a little bit more or a little bit less. That's, that's, you know, you know. And so what the author wants to get at here is that if we're talking about tzaddik means a righteous person or rasha means a wicked person describing something about them you can't simply say it has to do with how God judges their behavior it has to be something more about their character their personality their tendencies right? and those were all the sources that we discussed previously all were making reference to that okay. let's read that inside but concerning the true definition and quality of the distinct levels and ranks right, righteous intermediate our sages remark that the righteous are motivated solely by their good nature, as it's written, and my heart is void within me. That is, void of an evil nature, because King David had slain it through fasting. Okay. So, that Gemara that we learned earlier, that the tzaddik, the righteous, is motivated by their good nature, there's a continuation to that. The continuation is, it brings a verse from the Tanakh to support that. And the verse is, Libi chal bakirbi, my heart is empty inside of me. So that means somebody had a heart, their heart was empty, and there's something special about that. Now, that verse is from Psalms, and who said Psalms? Right, so he's referring to himself. His heart is empty. Empty from what? What usually resides in the heart? The evil inclination. Not the entire heart, the heart is not all bad, but that's where it hangs out. Where does it say that? What? Um, it's derived from the verse that says you should love Hashem with all your heart and there's two vases the word your, your heart can be said two ways in Hebrew libcha or levavcha levavcha just has doubled the, the letter base and so our sages say why is there two bases because there's two sides of the heart one side of the heart has your 
good inclination, one side of your heart has the evil inclination. You're saying you should love Hashem with your whole heart. Right. Okay. But getting back to King David, it says his heart was empty. And what does that mean? That the part of the heart that used to have the evil inclination didn't have it anymore because he got rid of it. Which, what kind of tzaddik would that make him, by the way? Perfect tzaddik, right? The one who's, well, not who the evil subjugated to good, but there is no evil. Okay, now how did King David get rid of it? Fasting. fasting. So, do you think we should start like a fasting program? And like that'll get rid of our evil inclination? No. So, why not? So they tell a story. There was once a, uh, a, a poor Jew, and he comes to a rich man to collect tzedakah. And the rich man says, look, why should I give you some money? Why don't you come feast with me and stay with me? And, uh, you know, she says, he, sta- he stays with the rich man for a little bit. And he sees that whenever the rich man wants something, he sh- rings a little bell. And the servants come and they bring it. So after a few days, it's time for the poor man to move on. The rich man says, I'll give you anything you want as a gift. And, he, and the poor man says, I want the bell. The rich man says, you sure? Like, that's what you want. You want the bell. He says, yes, the bell. So the poor man takes the bell. He goes home. And he's hungry, he rings the bell, and of course nobody comes to bring him food. And his clothes are on the floor, he rings the bell, nobody comes to clean them up. And he starts to think that he was cheated, it's the wrong bell. So he goes back to the rich man and says, you cheated me, I asked for your bell, you gave me a substitute, you gave me a fake. He says, what do you mean? He says, your bell, when you ring it, all these servants, they come and they bring you food and they clean up, and when I ring the bell, it doesn't happen. He says, the bell brings out the servants, it doesn't create the servants. I already have this because I'm rich. If you just don't eat, what does that do? It doesn't necessarily do anything. It depends on who you are, why you're doing it. So how did King David, with all of his righteousness, which I'm sure you can learn about in some other class, how did he get himself over that threshold to completely get rid of his evil inclination? He fasted. But like when I fast, you know what happens? I just become crabby. My evil inclination gets stronger. Mm-hmm. So that's why... Other than the halakhically mandated fasting, I don't do any extra fasting. So this is not an advocation of fasting. What it's saying is that there are processes people can take to change their character. And those processes, by the way, are different. Different people will be affected in different ways. But whoever has not attained this degree, even though his virtues exceed his sins, cannot at all be reckoned to have ascended to the rank of of righteous tzaddik. So even if... When it comes to Rosh Hashanah, God says, I've been doing a pretty good job. Keep at it. He's not going to take me out of this world, God forbid. And in fact, maybe I even don't do any sins at all. But if internally I haven't freed myself of the motivations of the evil inclination, I can't be called a tzaddik as a true description of my character. Because at the end of the day, I'm motivated by things other than the right things. I'm motivated by less than holy things. Yeah. So what you're saying is a tzaddik doesn't even, like, their thoughts are included in their act. It's not just actions, it's thought and action. It's even beyond that. It's even what they enjoy. It's all their motivations. Now, let's think about this for a second. If somebody, if, 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 if somebody um, does the wrong thing, we can say, okay, there's some, that they did the wrong thing, right? Is it possible to feel the wrong thing? This is an important question. It's not wrong, right? Because, because when we were in kindergarten, our teachers told us that feelings can never be wrong. Um, let's say you're going to the wedding of a funeral, the wedding of a, funeral, the wedding of a best friend, yeah? 
and you get to the wedding and you're there and all of a sudden you just feel this deep emptiness and like existential pain like you just want to curl up into a ball and cry and you don't want to be around anybody at your best friend's wedding would you include that? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with feelings just that's the way feelings are or you're at a wedding or you're at a funeral someone you really care about who died tragically and all of a sudden you feel this great elation and joy and you just want to like start singing and dancing and make jokes would you examine yourself and say yeah no, there's nothing wrong with feelings what? That's clinically diagnosable as somebody who will admit to it bothering them. <laughs> what? Why do those things sound off? Because your surroundings should also affect your emotions a little bit. Right, because feelings, in other words, feelings make sense in a context. It is true. If someone has hurt me and I have processed that I've been hurt, I, it would be appropriate to feel pain, right? But if nobody's hurt me, nothing is wrong, and I'm feeling pain, Something's off. Okay. Now, if you take that idea and you put it in the context of being totally devoted to God, if you're totally devoted to God, then how should you feel about things? Why? Because you're doing what you want. Studying Torah should make you happy. Well, is God always happy? Well, sometimes God is sad. Like when the Jewish people are suffering. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes God is joyous because someone overcame something, right? God, the, however the philosophy of that works, but that's if you look in the Chumash, you look in our sages, God is described as, as you know, having an opinion about things and feeling certain ways. And if I'm really devoted to God, it would be a little bit weird if God thinks this is really tragic and I think it's funny. Or God thinks it's wonderful and I think it's horrible. Right? So... If devotion for, to God, connection to God, is something that, that we're really using, stand, what we're really trying to, um, I don't know, measure ourselves by, but view ourselves from that perspective, then if my, how I feel about things, or how I think about things, or I value things, are not aligned with God, then that indicates some kind of disconnect and some kind of separation. Doesn't mean that I'm the most horrific person in the world, doesn't mean that. But it does mean that on some level, God and I have a little bit of tension between us. Because he feels one way about it, and I feel another way about it. By the way, is that normal? Yeah. yeah. But it does indicate that there's something that is separating between us, something that's driving us apart on some subtle level. So in order to be a tzaddik, it has to be the case that this person, how do they feel about things? Same way God feels about things. How do they view things? How they God feels? They're motivated by the same things that motivate God. Then they're in perfect alignment with God. But just because you're not that doesn't mean you're sinning doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. And even if you're doing the wrong thing, it doesn't mean you're like a bad person. Like most of us do the wrong thing from time to time. And like, we have to figure out why we do the wrong thing and how to fix it. So what the Alter Rebbe is getting at here is that we have to be a little bit more sophisticated. Let me, let me put it to you like this. If someone were to say, um, you know, that's not me, those were just my actions. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Why is that bad? Because you control your actions. Okay, why is it good? Because you can separate yourself from it. Why is that good? Because if you make a mistake, then you could like, you can get better. You can better, you can correct. In other words, 
if I, if, what I mean by that is to totally separate myself from my actions, right? Then that's just a way of avoiding responsibility. But if I don't appreciate that idea on any level, then what happens is that my previous actions become some sort of like destiny and I'm stuck and I feel like that's the kind of person I am. I'm the person who always makes that mistake and I can't change it. So I have to see some degree of separation, but not total separation. You know, one of the things that the Altar wants to elaborate later on in Tanya, starting actually from the first half of chapter one and then on through, um, through till about say chapter eight, maybe nine, depending on how we look at it, is that we have to have a more sophisticated way of thinking about ourselves, that we have to be able to think about ourselves on different levels. So there's me in the sense of my responsibility for what I've done. There's me in the sense of what I have tendencies towards to do. There's me in who I want to be. There's me who I am on some deep existential level that never changes. And if I can't navigate that, then what ends up happening is I, 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 I end up driving myself in circles. Like I do something wrong, and my way, of my way of dealing with that is to pretend it wasn't me. Like, oh, that was just in the past. It wasn't really me. Or I let it define me and I can't ever escape it. In terms of what we've done, we've done things. We have to take responsibility and there's judgment, there's consequences. Okay, that's one issue. There's the question of what kinds of behaviors can you expect from me? That's a separate question. There's another question. What kind of things motivate me? Right? There's a deeper question. Who am I at my core essence that's unchanging? That's a different question. And those all can be called me in some sense, but they're not all the same. And if I can't separate them and navigate them, then I end up just with, as the expression goes, a chalent in my head. Okay. So, am I a tzaddik? Yes, no, or it depends what you mean by tzaddik. So first off, you mean like a person who tends to pretty much do the right thing and avoids doing the wrong thing for the most part, then yes, I'm a tzaddik. I can say that with great confidence. More than that, we can even throw in the fact that not only is it not that I do, do wrong things, the wrong things that I do, I don't even feel good about. And I try and change them and work on them. So there we go. I think that's true about most people, by the way. Okay, now, do I have the tendency to sometimes do the wrong thing? What do you think? Yeah, okay. So am I motivated by, by motivations which are less than holy? Probably. Okay, so if, so if we're talking about on a deeper motivational level, what really drives me, I can't say I'm a tzaddik. If we're talking about how we evaluate my conduct overall, we could say I'm a tzaddik. Yeah. What if we talk about my very existence? The very fact that I'm here, is that a good thing? Is it good that I'm here? Yeah. yeah. So on some fundamental level, just like the mere fact that God finds worth in my being makes me right, makes me important, makes me significant. So what the author wants to say is like this. When we're describing the character of the person, we're going to use the term tzaddik to mean, and rasha to mean something very specific. Tzaddik means you're only motivated by good things. Rasha means not only you're motivated by bad things, but those motivations sometimes manifest in behavior. In terms of judging people, you have to judge people based on like their overall conduct, and most people's overall conduct is pretty good. Okay. In terms of your deep core essence, we're not talking about your, who, needs to, who needs to start labeling and judging your deep core essence anyway. So the whole book is going to be about navigating not your behavior, because more or less our behavior is pretty good. Not the deep core essence of our being, because that's also pretty good. 
but it's going to be talking about what drives us and what motivates us and how we can work to improve that in a realistic and healthy manner, which is what we start off in the introduction, right? How do we have Judaism close to you where? In your heart, not in your behavior. Yeah. What if you had a person who only was motivated by good, like all, to all mm. these questions, the answer mm. was that they are righteous, mm. except that they never actually did anything. Then they couldn't, because if you're motivated by good and not by evil, then that, 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 that. The, nat- the, one, the way behavior works in people that God created us is that if we're really motivated, it ca- carries out in behavior unless we have a conflicting motivation. So if I'm only motivated towards good, then I'll do good. If I'm only motivated towards evil, I'll do evil. If I'm motivated to both, now it's an open question what I'm going to end up doing. So someone who doesn't do anything, 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 would still be a better me? Someone who doesn't do anything, anything in real life, like if I step out of the book for a second, I would say probably... Um, there's probably some mental health issue going on because most people do things. Most people get up and are actively motivated to do something. Um, and usually, total inertness in life um, is a sign of clinical depression. So that would be what I would say. And then I would say that the altar is not really addressing that. The altar is addressing somebody who, who, who you know, functions and lives life. And the question is, are what they doing holy or unholy? Is it what they're doing moral or not moral? But... If they're just not doing anything at all, I would say that there's a more basic human functioning thing that needs to be addressed. That's what I would say. It doesn't say that in the time. But it's my so You're saying what drives or motivates a person defines, defines them tzaddik or rasha? In, no. The other way around. This is, this, is, this is the danger. We don't care whether you're a tzaddik or rasha. Why would we care whether you're a tzaddik or rasha? Why does that matter? Like, you need to have a label? Like, everyone should walk around, I am a tzaddik. I'm like, why do we care? It's the reverse. Do we need a good way of clarifying where I'm holding in terms of my motivations? Like, is it important to understand that the way my motivations work are different than the way, say, Moshe Rabbeinu's, Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu's motivations work? And that maybe I need to not just copy him, but deal with who I actually am? Let me, let me put this in example. Is it important if, if a child has a learning disability to label the learning disability? No? Why not? Once you figure out what it is, then you know how to help them. Right. But now you're very important. That the only reason you're doing it is for that. And so beyond that, you don't really care about the label. Right? It's not like I have this category called, I don't know, dyslexic. And now I want to figure out who goes into it. Like, who cares? I have a student who can't read. Now I go, why can't they read? It's helpful to realize that not all reading problems are the same. Oh, they have this reading problem called dyslexia. Treat it differently. Yeah. Is your problem that you do a lot of bad stuff? No, because you don't do a lot of bad stuff. Most people don't do a lot of bad stuff. They do some bad stuff, some of the time. So that's your problem. Let's make sure that's clear. Some people have a different problem. It's not that they do, they, ne- they never, right, the, the, a beta knee, they never do anything wrong. What's their problem? They have. Yeah, they, 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 they want to do it. They're not like wholeheartedly into the good. That's a different problem, right? So if we can label the problems differently, we can treat them differently. It's about diagnosis. But it's not like getting a title. It's not like you achieved vanity. Great for you. No one cares. God doesn't care. You shouldn't care. No one should care. What you should care about is if this is an accurate description of me, how do I navigate and deal with that? 
Ah, because as the altar is going to establish later on, everyone should strive to be a bainini. In other words, like this. Every single person, and we don't really, every single person has the capacity to work through the problems that cause them to be a Russia and to cure themselves of that. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it's within everybody's reach, right? It's it's close to you. It's within your reach to cure that problem. It is not within your reach necessarily to cure the problems that a Bainini suffers from. And so therefore it is important. He was trying to say this example. like, look, don't try and be like Moshe, be like me. And then Abai is like, that's not helpful. Like the difference between you two is not like, to give me a different example. Okay. It's not bragging. No, it's educational. Okay, to who? Like to his students. So he's saying, "I am a Benoni, be like me." He, they were discussing. They were discussing. It's in the same section. They're discussing the differences between them, mm-hmm. and he was trying to explain to them, make it concrete by saying, "Here's an example." Okay. And the Bible says that's not a helpful example. Like you're confusing the issue. Pick a different example. So some people's problem is they, they do a lot of bad things and they deserve to be punished. But that's not the problems that we're like, that, those problems are like, that's not our problems. Then there's people's problems that they do things that they shouldn't do because for some reason the desire to do the wrong thing actually translates into behavior. Not always, not, not even necessarily often, but sometimes, somehow, and that's the issue they struggle with. And then there's people who don't struggle with that issue. Like when it comes to behavior, they manage to get that totally under control. The problem they struggle with is they're not wholeheartedly into the good. And there's some people who don't even struggle with that. What do Siddiquim struggle with? I don't know. They do struggles. I do know, but it doesn't matter. They struggle with something else. And so it's important to know like what you're struggling with and is that something that's curable or is that something that's not curable? If you're struggling with not being totally 100% enthusiastic about God and Torah and mitzvahs, whose struggle are you struggling with? The Bainini struggle or the Russia struggle? Bainini. If you're struggling with getting your evil tendencies under control, then who you, what struggle are you struggling with? Russia. The Russia struggle. And what the Altarbis whole point is, that's something you can actually succeed at. It's not easy. You can actually succeed at that. Whereas the Bainini struggle, you'll never, you can't really succeed at. You can get good at it, but you'll never like finish that problem. So what's the point of having like a chapter describing what the tzaddik is? If... When we get to the chapter describing the tzaddik, we'll talk about it. But for now, I'm going to just give you the basic answer that if you have context, then you understand everything better. If you only discuss about one thing, then you don't really appreciate it. Our minds work on contrast. Actually, our senses even work on contrast. Like if, if you, you don't actually see, you don't actually see colors. You see the differences between colors. And you feel the differences between temperatures. We, our whole experience is contrast. So it's not, that the basic answer to everything in Judaism is we have to talk about at least two things because that's the only way to understand one thing. Yeah. So if we're not motivated to do certain mitzvahs, it's saying that there's a, disconnect in our relationship to Hashem and it's something that we're constantly going to be working on and we're never going to reach a point that it's like okay. 
If the disconnect is preventing you from actually doing the mitzvah, that's something you can actually fix. But if it's preventing you from being wholeheartedly enthusiastic, then maybe that's not something you can fix. You can be more enthusiastic, but... Um, it, 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 it does get unmotivating, which is why after the altar finishes dealing with that, he starts addressing the importance of joy and to put that in context. So the first issue is really, okay, having an accurate diagnosis of who we are and what we're capable of and what we should strive for, right? To set our expectations realistically and healthfully and understand how to navigate that. And then, once we put that on perspective, say, well, wait a minute, that feels a little you know, disillusioned. <laughs> a little, I know it's not even a word, but a little disillusioned by that. Okay, so then we have to put that in a larger, you know, why does the world exist context kind of thing. Okay, and then he does that too. And that's, you know, the second third of the Tanya, I guess. So it's very important to understand. The Alter Rebbe is telling a person that they're a tzaddik, they're a rusher, a baini, the same way that uh, uh, someone who's dealing with, with, with education <coughs> wants to figure out, is this child dyslexic or are they not dyslexic? I don't care if you're dyslexic. It doesn't really bother me. But I do want to know why. Okay. I teach Bachram Gemara. I've had dyslexic students. And you can't do with them the same thing you do with everybody. You tell them, do, do this, this, and it works, right? And this kid's dyslexic. It doesn't work. Like, don't... So know that, and then you find a different solution. Yeah, it, it's important to know what works for the person, and you need to know what the issues are. And that's what he's trying to get at. So it's not about a title or an achievement to be this or to be that. Jews struggle with different things. Just one second. One of the struggles is, do, does my evil inclination, my evil tendencies, find expression in my behavior? And if the answer is yes, the author says, that's something I can teach you how to cure. If the answer is, I'm not wholeheartedly, 100% enthusiastic about the Torah mitzvahs that I'm doing, he says, I can help you work with that, but I can't solve that problem for you. That, that you're gonna, it's a problem you're going to have to, as they say in med- medicine, you're going to have to manage it rather than cure it. Yeah. Um, okay, first I have a question, and then I guess another question. Okay. <laughs> uh, so... Isn't it that the Torah is only supposed to be part of the picture because of the limitless existence of God and the fact that God exists outside of time and space and that this is only helping us see part of it? So couldn't somebody struggle with it be on one level? I mean, I'm sure this would be like a rare case, but couldn't it be because that person is able to connect more to their godliness and that part of them realizes that they are only being part of the picture and it's coming out of a desire to want to know what those other aspects of Hashem are in regard to the Torah. Like, it's coming out of a place of actually higher connection that your soul's realizing this is only part of it and I want to know more rather than like an arrogance or a rejection of it. So the answer is that yes with some caveats with some uh, things one of the issues that the author is going to deal with in chapter 4 is that we don't really understand what Torah is and because of that this creates this um, unfortunate thing that if you don't know what Torah is you might want a desire to connect to God 
you don't appreciate what Torah, how Torah really does connect you to God. And that makes you vulnerable to the evil inclination to push you in other ways because you, it, it then has a, um, a good sales pitch. That this itself, in other words, if I, if I really want to connect to God, but I don't really appreciate how that's exclusively through Torah, which that doesn't explain how that is, but right now let's just take that for granted for the moment. Then that means that I'm susceptible to the rationalization that this will also connect me to God. And that's actually one of the things Alter Rebbe tries to address is what is the relationship of everything to God? What's the relationship of Torah to God, mitzvahs to God, eating healthily to God, sinning to God? Because unless I know how everything connects or disconnects me from God, unless I have the total picture, I'm invo- I, I might really want to connect to God and I feel that godly desire from the godly soul on the one hand, but it's unchanneled and undirected and therefore it's vulnerable to being taken advantage of by the evil inclination. Okay. Um, the... the the Baal Shem Tov would say that not only is this true some of the time, it's actually true all the time. That deep, deep down, what motivates every Jew all the time is a desire to connect to God. And even when someone sins, and even when they sin intentionally, maliciously out of rejection to God, if we were to go enough steps back in their mind, the ultimate first domino is a drive to connect to God. And then things got misinterpreted and misunderstood along the way. So for instance, just to Sometimes their conception of God is so warped that their desire to connect to God is forcing them to reject this false notion of God. In other words, that they, like I have a student now in the men's program and he grew up religious and he, he really hates Judaism um, because he's convinced that, 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 that God is described in Judaism as in God. And the funny thing is he starts talking. It's like he's saying God is like this and God is like this and God is like that. And he's describing all the stuff that Chassidus says about God and, and Judaism says God isn't that. So therefore, he's very upset with Judaism. So a lot of it has to do with not, not what you really want to achieve, but how the desires get processed between layer and layer on the human experience. And that's why the Al-Jab is going to go chapter after chapter. What is the soul? How does it process reality? What is mitzvah? What is Torah? What is your body? What is, what is, what is just having a job? What do all these things do in terms of relationship with God? And then when you have a holistic picture... You're, you, the, the good desires and the good drives get manifested the right way. Okay. But until that happens, the situation you're describing is very, very common. And not only is it very common, this I'm saying not in any sort of halacha capacity, there's nothing wrong with it either. Okay. It's like there's nothing wrong with, it's nothing wrong with um, a person who... Um, I'll give you an example. There's nothing wrong with... A, with a, with a child who wants to skip school and spend time with their parents. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. Now, like, there is a reason why the children don't go to work with their parents and they go to school, right? There's a reason for that. But the desire is not wrong, and in certain situations, that maybe isn't even appropriate. Um, and the, uh, the, one of the things that made Chassidus controversial is the Balshanta would say, yeah, you see this person you know, not doing a mitzvah, but if you go deeper and deeper and deeper to why, you don't really understand that it's a proper desire that's gotten somehow misaligned. And so we shouldn't think of this person as a bad person, we should think of this person as a very, very good person who, who needs some guidance. But if they don't have that guidance, you should be impressed by how passionate they are about God. Because, and you can see how passionate they are about God because look at what they're doing. 
And ultimately, the Jew, every motivation initially starts with the desire to connect to God. So that's the caveat I would put on it. Yeah? I don't know if this is too far off what we want to talk about, so let me know. But related to what you were just saying, when people have a sense of, like, I can't accept this, like, notion of God because, to my understanding, God is good, Mm -hmm. so how could God allow X, Y, Z? Is, like... What's the beginning of the response to that struggle of like being consciously aware I want to connect to God and also being like, is this God that we're talking about the God that I want to connect to, the God that I believe? Like, do I believe this is the way of connecting with that? So, God? I mean, it's hard to answer questions without knowing the person. I mean, I'm always hesitant to answer questions in a class because I don't know the people in the class just from the class. Mm-hmm. And I certainly am hesitant to answer a question vicariously. Like, like, if there would be a person who, like, because I mean, people are involved, people have so much going on in their lives. Um, I mean, as a general rule, especially if you're not in some sort of like capacity where it's your job to maintain the communal standards, always the best thing to do is to find the point at which you agree with them, the point at which they're on the right track, the point at which they have something positive and build on that and work from there. Because as a general rule, nobody really is like, oh, thank you for enlightening me that I'm totally wrong. Thank you, I appreciate it. It happens, but that's pretty rare, right? Generally people are like, you. They, 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 they appreciate there's more in what they felt or thought than they previously realized is a better way. I'm not even just asking, like, for me, speaking to other people, like, I have this right. issue as well. When, like, things happen, yeah. and I'm yeah. like, how do I reconcile this? Yeah. So that's the general, the general, the general approach always has to be find what is good and true and stable and, and build on that. That gets very different because now that people's people's modes of being are very different. So, for instance, like this, some people are extremely um, intellectual, and I don't mean smart here. And by intellectual means means concepts count more for the, to them than say how it's experienced. Okay. And for such a person, an explanation is extremely powerful and extremely useful, and it, and it works. Because the real, because it's not, I, the, their issue is like, I need a way of this making sense, not this feeling good. It's a different issue. There are people who are extremely smart, but they're not, fun, they don't process reality fundamentally as a conceptual thing. They process reality as what is the quality of experience? What is it like to go through this? And for that, there's a totally different way of dealing with those things. And that usually involves finding, you know, how the, ex- the experiences are much more complex. That a negative is not purely a negative experience. And a positive is not a purely positive experience. Because they start ex- stop experiencing life so, in such a black and white manner. That's a very different thing. Okay? And obviously people don't even fit nicely into these two categories either. I'm just giving examples. So it's very hard to say, like, this is the thing. I mean, like, you know, for some people, putting a conceptual framework on it brings them tremendous amount of peace. And for some people, it just sounds like you're, like, whitewashing the issue. And there's not a right or wrong to that. So you have to know yourself. If you're counseling someone, you have to, you know, know them. If it's a really serious issue, you probably should do some training and counseling them and not just, like, start spouting off things. Um, I have a certificate that says I'm a professional therapist. But no training, so. Um, but yeah, so I don't do that. But 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 it is it is clear that that, that you you can't you can't you can't have the attitude I'm going to correct someone else, or I'm going to even correct myself. 
I'm going to build on something that's good and true. Um, and from that place, put perspective or heal or work with the other issues. Yeah. What if someone's like dislike for Judaism or a topic in Judaism is kind of based off of like false, like a false reality, like not really accurate? So it depends. If it's information, then just education. Just tell them that. Just tell them in a nice way that they're wrong, and show them what the right, what the right thing is and problem solved. That's the easy thing. If the if the but if the if it's not just information, if it's that it's cultural, then there's very little you as an outsider can do. The person has to make a decision. I want this to change, and then ask what can I do and how I live my life for it to change. Um, because like one of the things about the way God made us is that we're we're creatures of our society and our habits. So if I live in a society, I cannot help but absorb its values. And we're also creatures that we do not like. We can't handle inconsistency. So if I live in one society with one set of values, I will be incapable of being at peace with a conflicting set of values. That's just the way we're designed. So if I don't, if I want to have a certain set of values. That does make a certain kind of a choice involved, um, you know, and, and the same thing with behavior. Like we can't, we can't abide hypocrisy. So if I make a choice to live life in a certain way, but subscribe to conflicting values, at some point that's going to like tear me apart. So a person who says I'm living in a certain way and I'm part of a certain society, but I want to have these other values, but they make me very uncomfortable. What can I do? And they're genuinely asking for guidance. Then you can guide them. But if they're not at that point yet, you can't do anything to make them. Right? And, that, and, and not only can't you, you shouldn't because it's, like, it's a really arrogant. Like, like who are you to like, top in the driver's seat in someone else's life? You can, you can simply share and communicate where you're coming from, but that's the best you can do. I mean, the great evidence of this is that throughout all the ages, you know, from Moshe, uh, Rabbi Shimba Yochai, the Baal Shem Tov, the Rebbe, there's never been a tzaddik, prophet, anybody who has had the magic bullet to just make people automatically like, yes, now I'm fully on board. Because people have free will. And people have their own individual experiences. And a person, you know, you, you, a person has to want, you know, has to, has to want to change. If they don't want to change, then the best you can do is, to, is demonstrate by example. So they might see what you have and decide that they want that. But that's all you can do. Thank you. All right. It's not so far off topic. Okay. Which actually is important because the author is going to write the book in the style that you've already come and asked for help. He's you're, going, looking you're looking for help. He's not, yeah, he's, not written, he's not writing these ideas in the sense of, here's why you should do this. He's saying, you're coming and saying, I want to be closer to God in my heart. The verse says it, it's within my power, and I'm completely confused as what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to navigate that. But if you were to come to the altar and say, like, I don't want to do this, the altar would say, okay, do you want kugel? Do you want to have some chocolate? <laughs> like, like, the altar's like, okay, like, fine. Like, it's your free will. Like, we can still be friends. It's okay. Um, that's, yeah, it's important to know that. Yes? So the Tanya is about your relationship with God and it helps you and you're seeking for it. Why is there such, like, such controversial things like about like, people who are against learning Tanya or against that? Because if it's, like, it's purely to enhance your relationship, it's not like changing anything. Then like... Well, so I think everyone should appreciate that I'm not going to do the best job of um, presenting why you should not learn Chassidus as an argument, right? I mean, why... <laughs> 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 like there's that, a 
But you could say why you should, and I therefore you should say why you shouldn't. I, so, so I'll say it like this. So this is the Chassid's perspective on why the, the people who are not Chassidim are opposed to Chassidus. Yes. <laughs> but keep that in mind that that's as far as you're getting. Um, and obviously throughout the era, these different things. One of the main criticisms of Chassidus um, in the times of the Alter Rebbe um, was that you're making God too relatable. God, right, another too relatable. In other words, we associate, by the way, we have this thing that God is, all, religion is all about a relationship with God. But if you were like in Eastern Europe, in the times of the Baal Shem Tov, before Baal Shem Tov, he's like, what's Judaism about? Judaism is not learning with Judaism. Judaism is the way God said we should live. And like, what's the point? So what do you mean, what's the point? The point is that you don't die and go to hell. That's the point. Like, what do you mean? Like, like what's the point of observing laws of gravity? Same thing. Like, like, like what about relationship with God? Like, what are you, infinite? Why, who says you have a relationship with God? Like, like, you barely know how to read. Like, why would you have a relationship with God? Stop relationship with God. Go, say your prayers. Be honest in business and, you know, leave, just leave God out of it. But now we don't think of Judaism that way, right? But there really was such an attitude that Judaism is not really about a relationship with God. It's about you doing what's good for you in the system and rules that God has set up for his world. And so God is not, you don't really have, like, and so, and people that adopted this thought it was very important to study the Talmud and very important to do the mitzvahs, but prayer is like, it's a perfunctory thing, it's a ritual and that's it. And so they, like, they didn't put any heart and soul into their prayer because, like, what's the point? You know, and, and from that, if that's your attitude about Judaism, then, like, like the whole idea that you'd want a book to put emphasis on your relationship with God. And then even when it's a relationship with God, like, that's not the main thing. So there's a good story that the, 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 the Talmud says that um, there was a man who had a field, and he, all the wheat was harvested. All the wheat was harvested, and he asked the manager of the estate. Well, after he said, you, "Did you put it all in the barn?" He says, "Yeah. Did you mix in um, some? It's kind of dirt, which they use as a preservative. So don't ask me. I'm not a farmer. But apparently, in the ancient times, they, there was a kind of dirt that worked as a preservative. So he says, did you mix in a little bit of this dirt?'" And uh, the guy says, no. He says, well, then you should have brought it into the barn because you put it all in the barn. There's no preservative. It's going to start spoiling and rot. Like you didn't accomplish anything. You actually would better that you just left it out. And then the Talmud says, this is an analogy for a person who does a lot of mitzvahs and studies a lot of Torah, but doesn't have any relationship with God, doesn't have any true fear of heaven. And so the Alter Rebbe used to say, like, this is important. It doesn't matter how much you know and how much you have to have a relationship with God. You have to have that little bit of dirt that preserves everything. So then the opponents of Chassidus told the Alter Rebbe, but it says a little bit of dirt for a whole barn's worth of, of, of wheat. So like, why are you spending hours and hours and hours talking and fabregging and praying? Like, do a little bit and then, you know, go off and do your mitzvahs and Torah study. And so the, the Alter Rebbe says, he says, the dirt you only need a little bit, but he said you have to mix the dirt in and the mixing takes a very long time. Which means basically... You don't need a lot of information or ideas per se, but assimilating it, that's a full-time job. And they said, no, nah, like, it's not really about a relationship. I mean, if it is a relationship, so like, you know, like, you know, like spend 15 minutes thinking about your relationship with God and then the rest of the time just like study Talmud and go do business honestly and don't worry about God too much. That was, that was the perspective. 
as time has gone on, the perspective of Hasidic has slowly permeated outside the official walls of Hasidic communities. So it's, it's, nowadays, most Jews do think more along the lines of that, yeah, Judaism is about a relationship with God. We start getting into details, there'll be differences. Okay. That's my take on it, from the perspective of a Hasid. You can go ask a non-Hasid what their take on it. Okay. All right. Fine. So, as of now, we know that as Jews we suffer from two basic problems. One problem is we'll call the problem of being a Russia, which is sometimes my desires to do things that God does not approve of or not do things God, not to do things God wants me to do actually manifest in my, how I live my life. Not even all the time, but some of the times. And I would like that to stop. That's one problem. And another problem is I don't feel as enthusiastic as I would like to. I don't feel as wholeheartedly motivated in connecting to God, even the stuff that I'm doing, as I would like. That's called the Bainani problem. And he says, before we start talking about how to solve these problems, we need to start addressing all of reality. And the first part, part of reality we're going to address is ourselves. Then we're going to do mitzvahs and Torah. Then we're going to do all the activities that we're involved in, work, we're going to address sins. And once we have all things, we understand how all reality works, then we can come back and start solving these problems. What did you say the Bainani problem is? That sometimes we just don't feel it? We don't feel as Driven. enthusiastic as we would like to. And the first problem is that we do bad things. Yeah. Not all the time, but some about, of the time. Most people, yeah, for sure, both. So that you would be like a so, 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 which is a very interesting thing, which is that if you have both problems, then maybe you could work on both at the same time. Right? It's like, you know, I don't know how to read Hebrew, and I don't know what the Chumash says. Those are two distinct problems, right? There are plenty of Israelis who don't know what the Chumash says, and there are plenty of people who don't know how to read Hebrew, but they've read the Chumash in English. But if you don't have both of those problems, theoretically, what could you do? Learn Hebrew and read it. You could go to a class where they teach the Chumash in Hebrew and translate it, and then what are you doing simultaneously? Learning Hebrew and learning what the Chumash says. It's strange how there's classes like that. Hmm. There's no rule that says that you can't work on two things at once. It just has to be in a way that it's constructive. Yeah. And one of the things, and we'll get to this later, is that the Altar is going to make it very clear. It's not a hierarchy. Um, so much so that the, the other Rebbe's commentaries on the Tanya like, make, like, make it like very extreme that it's not a hierarchy. It's different issues, and if you have all these different issues, then you should deal with all of them. Okay. Fine. Okay. Let's last little bit of this paragraph. This is why our sages have declared in the Medrash, the Almighty saw the righteous were few, so he planted them in every generation. For it is written that tzaddik is the foundation of the world. What does this mean? If a tzaddik of a righteous person means somebody who's pretty decent, then are they few? Are decent people few? No. No. They're very, they're the common. They're the majority. They're the overwhelming majority, right? As evidenced by the fact that on Rosh Hashanah, most people live to the next year. So clearly, most people are decent people. So clearly what it means in the Medrash when it says the righteous are few is referring to people who are only motivated by good. Those are very few. They're very rare. So what did God do? Sprinkled. Few sprinkled them in every generation. Why would he do that? 
Why would he do that? So they could help others? Apparently, well, what it says here is that they're the foundation of the world. If you don't have them, things aren't going to work properly. And if you have a limited resource and you need it all the time, then you ration it. So God has a limited pool of, of real tzaddikim, and he needs them, so he rations them out throughout history. What? Why wouldn't he make more tzaddikim? Why does he have to ration them so few? Okay. <laughs> well, remember we had a class and I said that being a tzaddik, I mean, he's not the end all and be all. You might be really good at being a tzaddik, but you're really lousy at something else. Yeah. Okay. So let's for today's class, assume that we're not going to go with the God can make a rock so big that even he can't lift issue. And it's just like everything has its own characteristics. You know, heavy things are heavy, light things are light. Okay. Well, it turns out that if you have the capacity for being a tzaddik, like really, like you're, you, you really could do it. And we're going to see you also require some free will on your part. So everyone that could doesn't always mean they end up being one. But if you're really good at being a tzaddik, you know what you're really bad at? Some other important stuff. And that other important stuff is actually more important. And it's so more important that most people have to be equipped to do that, which then unfortunately makes them bad at being tzaddikim. So God has like, okay, some of these guys are going to hold them back and make them tzaddikim. It's like an army. Yeah? Which soldiers are not allowed to carry guns in an army? What? They would know? There is a soldier, as far to my knowledge, are not allowed to carry weapons into battle. What? No. Chaplains. What's the whole idea of the chaplain? So now here's the thing: like the army needs some spiritual guidance, right? But then the whole thing that makes them spiritual that both sides recognize like the untouchability of the sacred spiritual guides, right? But then that makes them really bad soldiers. So you don't want a whole army of chaplains. Okay. In a similar way, tzaddikim are really great at being totally motivated by good. They're not really great at the ultimate purpose of existence. They're actually pretty lousy at it. And so he needs some because they, in some way, are the foundation of the world to make things work. But if God starts making all of us capable of being a tzaddik, then it's not going to work. Whatever, whatever, and that's one thing he's going to get into, is that whatever the world is supposed to be is not going to actually achieve, its, achieve what needs to happen if everyone's a tzaddik. Because apparently being a tzaddik does come at the expense of being able to do other things. Like, the spiritual role of the chaplain comes at the expense of the, you know, killing other people kind of thing. Should. Okay. Which, by the way, what does that mean if we take that idea quite seriously? You versus Samra Moshe Rabbeinu. Who's better? It depends on what. <laughs> yeah. Einstein has a quote, right? That everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will spend its yeah. entire life thinking it's stupid. I don't know if that's a quote of Einstein, but it's a good quote. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, so it's the same thing. It's like, there's something else other than being a tzaddik that's actually quite important, it's, and it's really important. It happens to be the whole world doesn't work without a few tzaddikim in every generation. We don't, he hasn't explained why. So, God has to have a few, but only a few, and so he has to make sure that he sprinkles them and rations them. But clearly, that, that sense of tzaddik is something that is rare, and being a decent person is not rare. Being a, being a decent person is most people most of the time. 
Okay. Yeah. Do they have to be like this is just Sadikim in the world, but not necessarily revealed Sadikim that we correct, know. Correct, correct. So like right now, this current moment, they could be like people that like Yeah. But yeah. we don't like Yeah. Yeah. We don't know or they don't know. So there's a great story with the with the Rujna Rebbe. I think it was the Rujna Rebbe. There's a there's a Jewish tradition that there's thirty six hidden Sadiqim. And so his Chassidim asked him, he said, Rebbe, who are these thirty six Sadiqim? These thirty six hidden righteous people? He said, Well, I'm one of them. And they said to him, Rebbe, we all know that you're righteous. And he said, Oy vavoy, which I guess in English translates as woe. But it doesn't have the same effect. <laughs> but whoa, if what you think my righteousness is, is what it actually is. In other words, how do we understand other people? We project in reference to ourselves. So what his point was, is like, when you're looking around for a hidden tzaddik, or you're looking around for a tzaddik, what do you do? You look at the person, and you see in what sense they're greater than you, what sense you understand these things that we're learning in your terms, and then you project it and see how it would fit in them. But does that really give you any true insight as to what's really going on into them? Not necessarily. Okay. Especially if their inner psychology is so much different, that is really different than yours, then you really don't know. And so his point was that when we say things are hidden or things are revealed, something can be out there in the open and nobody knows what it really is. So... It's not like you necessarily they have to, you know, that, that, that how tzaddikim work and how the foundation of the world, you know, is not explained here. But it doesn't have to be that there's a person who's like telling everyone how to do tournaments and not necessarily what it is. Okay. There's something about their kinds of being that relates to the, relates to the world. Now, later on, he does speak about it a little bit in chapter two. And it's elaborated more in other places in Chassidus, and there's also a few discussions in the Gemara about it. Um, but yeah, it's not like it's not like there's a you don't get like a plaque that says I am a revealed tzaddik. Now everybody knows. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work like that. Um, plus, there's this other thing, which is that because we're like we're social, and social is just a nice way of saying tribal. Um, so if you have a tzaddik and you're part of a different tribe, then what am I? Inte- what do I have an incentive to do? Say that your tzaddik isn't really a tzaddik because that's part of your tribe. You're not part of my tribe. So that creates a whole interesting dynamic in Judaism, where this group of Jews says your tzaddik isn't really a tzaddik. And yeah. By the way, you know how far this goes back? Yeah, all the way to to who? The twelve tribes. No, 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 no. The, the, the whole the whole Jewish people. Who was the first clear Torah. tzaddik that people said was not a tzaddik? Moshe. Moshe. There's like a whole group of Jews in the desert like that says, nah, Moshe's just making it up. Moshe's, Moshe's a hypocrite. From his tribe, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, because there were, there were tribes and then clans within the tribes. Not from his clan, but whatever, yeah. yeah. This is a, like an ongoing problem. King David, right? King David! Yeah. First seven years of his reign, the Jewish people were not interested. Only the tribe of Judah, his tribe. Took a while before the rest of the people got on board. This happens. This is this is this is another unfortunate thing. There's a there's a um, there's a, there were two great Sadiqim that were alive at the times of the Alter Rebbe, um, who really strongly disagreed with each other, and their followers um, did not like, you know, were very antagonistic towards each other. One of them was named the Shpalu Zaidi, 
Um, that wasn't his actual name, but that's how he's known. And the other one was Vnachman of Breslov. Um, and the Shpalzeda was a very critical of Vnachman of Breslov. And he used to say he used to say very, very sharp things about how he's not really a tzaddik and he's a charlatan and he's he's destroying the world of Judaism and blah 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 blah, all sorts of things. Anyway, he would say these things. So one time the Shpalzeda heard one of his disciples speaking disparagingly about Vnachman of Breslov. And so the Shpalzeid, he said, what are you doing? And he said, what do you mean, what am I doing? He said, I'm, my, you're, the, you're the rabbi, you're the great tzaddik, and you say that he's wicked, and you say all these horrible things about him, so clearly it's true, so I'm also saying those things. And um, the Shpalzeid, they said that and I'm not going to explain how this works, but it's a play on words. It doesn't translate into English, but there's a play on words in uh, in in Arashi and Parshas Noach. But basically, if you if you put the commas in the wrong places, the sentence would read that even when people say he's not a tzaddik, he's still a tzaddik. And it was basically saying is that I'm speaking on a totally different level of analysis than what you're talking about. Like when I say that, I'm saying on the realm of tzaddikim and like what they're doing in mystical stuff. Like I have problems with him. What you're talking about is you just think that you just think that he's like a like a, like a regular everyday charlatan and hypocrite. So this is something that makes us as human beings very uncomfortable. That you can have very strong and very serious disagreements that go over our heads, and then when we project our own understanding, then we misinterpret them. The the Talmudic sages, the medieval sages, the Hasidic, there have always been disagreements and very sharp language. Oh, you're not doing right. You're right. You're wicked. But they're, just like here, the altar was trying to say there's different levels of an understanding things. They're also. So if we're going to use the standards that we're talking about here, there are, it's important to realize that somebody can be motivated by good and only good, and someone else can be motivated by good and only good, and they can have serious problems with what the H1 is doing because they are looking at things from a much different perspective and they say, I know you're motivated by good but you don't appreciate the consequences of what you're doing so now you don't know what the consequences of what you're doing are they're back and forth and they might use language that to us sounds like they're just calling each other you know, bad names okay? and then because we're tribal we always like to be our team to be right and their team to be wrong and therefore the healthy attitude is to say like this to quote um, a chassid of the Alter Rebbe once said I said um, the master is a master, but not for me. The teacher is a, the, the student is a stu- student, but not for thee. It rhymes in English. If you use thee, meaning there's this other rabbi. <laughs> you're a master. You know what you're talking about, but you're not for me. And I'm a real disciple. I don't know what I'm talking about. I have a teacher. I have a master. But I'm a disciple of someone else. So you do your thing. I'll do my thing. And that's an important thing. That Judaism is not just for one big collective. There are different modes and different ways of doing things. And these tzaddikim, they can all be motivated by the right thing. And they can all have differing opinions as to how things go about. And we shouldn't then translate into our own tribal tendencies of my team is always right and their other team is always wrong. And one of the interesting things that the Alter would often do in his discourses is explain practices, customs, and ideas that he himself did not agree with. As to why, what, what the legitimate basis of them is. So when you talk about when you're talking about these these people that they're totally motivated by good, it doesn't mean that they're like angelic robots. They look like people. They have opinions, but if you were to go deep into their soul, which is a way that something we can't do it, 
you would see that the thing that's motivating you all the time on all levels is devotion to God. And everything they're doing is in line with God. And God is very multifaceted. So it plays out in different ways. Yeah. On the subject of like things being for different people, different rabbis, different students, um, in the Chabad world in particular, I've heard a lot of rhetoric around like, everyone should learn Chabadists, and like, if only people who are in different schools of thought would learn Chabadists, it would enlighten all of the other levels of Torah. Um, And I've heard a very little bit, um, but a little bit of like, not everybody should learn, not everybody needs to connect to Hashem by learning Chassidus, and some people are part of the Muslim movement or whatever other movement, and that works for them. Um, and I guess you're just another person in Chabad, but I'm curious how you... <laughs> yes, I will give you the propaganda. No, I will, I will not answer your question. I will instead tell you, th- I would instead tell you, I guess it's like two stories, but it's kind of like three stories. The first story is um, that someone came to the Rebbe. But the only way this is going to answer your question is if you have to understand that, that the same person is involved in all three of these stories and the same person clearly doesn't see these things as contradictory. That's, someone came to the Rebbe and spoke about how do you get people to be more involved in Judaism. And he said, you have to use chassidus, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. And he said, without chassidus, it will never work. And they had an argument, and the Rebbe would not budge on that point of view. He said, no, it has to have the light of chassidus somehow in order for it to get someone involved in Judaism. And then he went even further, and he even published and edited this, that every person's enthusiasm and excitement in Judaism, if you really know, look at it carefully, investigate, you'll see that somehow it's influenced by chassidus. Okay. That's one story. Second story. There was a guy who was uh, becoming interested in being more religious and actually no, he, was, he, was, he was, grew up religious and he was really not into it. And so he, he got involved with some local shluchim and they were learning Tanya with him and he wasn't really into it. He didn't really like it. It wasn't working for him. And he went from this shliach to learn Tanya. And all these different people were trying to teach him Tanya and nothing was going. And um, he went to the Rebbe. They sent him to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe told him that he should learn Masil Sushar. He told the Rebbe, he learned Tanya, it's not working for him. Masil Sharm. Now, Masil Sharm is like, like, if you put Tanya on one extreme, if it's all about relationship with God, the Masil Sharm is a book about how to understand Judaism on the opposite extreme. It's all about how it's all about you, and God just wants things to be good for you, and it's all about, like, you know, God doesn't want to give you free candy. He wants to make you work for your candy, but it's all about your, the reward that you can get, and God doesn't want to give you for free. Okay, it's like two extremes. And then he says, you should learn that, and that should have to be your guide to life. And he did that, and now he is a very religious, non-Chabad person. Story number two. Story number three, which I guess is part of story number two, is that this person one time asked his non-Chabad rabbi, um, why did the Rebbe tell him to learn Masil Yashar, but not like he's in Chabad, or about Chabad. And so this non-Chabad Rabbi told him, he says, well, he's a Hasidic Rebbe, and like, the job of a Hasidic Rebbe is to know what, you're, what works for your soul. And so he knew what would work for your soul is Masil Sushar. Now, that's not an answer. Those are little pieces of information. And the answer comes from seeing that maybe the, 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 the words we use and the concepts in our head are too 
rigid and too coarse to allow for an answer. We have to have a more subtle way of looking at things. That if I can see how those three stories aren't in tension with each other, but actually complement each other and enhance each other, then I have to start a bit of what the perspective of Chabad is. Is everyone supposed to be Chabad? Is I'm supposed to be Chabad? But if I start explaining it, then my experience in life is I just run myself into trouble that I don't have the right words for it and people don't understand what I mean. And I'm not even sure that I necessarily have the right conception of it. But those are true stories. And so the truth somehow lies within all of them as one. All right. Next week, we will start talking about the two souls. Thanks. Um, Thanks. Yeah.